1: We're starting on some deep like David Attenborough shit, but I feel like every time the hubris of man is like, oh cool, look, we beat war and we've defeated this and yeah. all these things now, then just like something comes along yeah, to course. just remind
0: that. Yeah, well, it's just don't don't get too big headed. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. You know, always be nice to people on the way up. Yeah. Because <laughs> you never know where you'll meet on the way down.
1: I'm Mark Ronson, and this is the Fader Uncovered podcast. In this interview series, I'll be speaking with some of the most influential and groundbreaking musicians in the world, from genre-defining stars to avant-garde trailblazers about their lives and careers. Each episode will be rooted in these musicians' iconic Fader cover stories, an institution that over the past two decades has told artists' stories like no other. The podcast is a chance for us to talk about the past, present, and future reflecting on their breakthroughs, diving into their lives when their covers hit shelves, and discussing what the future might hold now. And it's an opportunity for me to speak to some of the artists I most admire. This is The Fader Uncovered with Mark Ronson. Today I'm talking to one of the most prolific and prolifically versatile artists of the past 30 years, Damon Albarn. Alben appeared on the cover of The Fader issue 43 in early 2007 to promote The Good, The Bad, and The Queen, a supergroup whose individual members do a pretty good job of summing up Alben's influences under one roof. You have punk reggae and West London icon Paul Simonon of The Clash on bass, afrobeat pioneer and groove lord Tony Allen on drums, and Simon Tong of proto-Britpop legends The Verve on guitar. And then you have Damon, the only force of nature powerful enough to unite these talents and fairly healthy egos, all behind him as one army. Album formed Blur back in the late 80s, and once they hit their stride a few albums in, they became an unstoppable force, much of that due to Damon's innate talent for dressing up deceptively well-written, often complex songs with insanely hummable everyman choruses. Then he gets turned on to American underground hip-hop, things like Dr. Octagon and Dell, and suddenly he fancies spreading some of that melodic genius into some other genres. You add Jamie Hewlett's iconic visuals and bam, 7 million copies sold of the first Gorillaz album. In fact, the Gorillaz have gone on to achieve such insane international success that it's hard to imagine it was considered career suicide at the time, the crown prince of Britpop abandoning indie to make a dusty cartoon hip-hop album. But Damon has constantly followed his own creative compass, bucking trends like it's an art form and forging new trends in the process, whether it's Blur, Gorillaz, Africa Express, operas like Journey to the West, his solo work. It's an extremely enviable body of work and an example of what happens when you stick to your creative guns and also happen to be one of the great songwriters of your day. We have a lot of mutual collaborators and have circled each other quite a bit but never really got stuck in till now. So I was pretty excited and maybe like 3% nervous to get deep right here for The Fader Uncovered. Can you talk about this opera then, the thing that you just did in Paris a
0: little bit more? Yeah, sure. It? Yeah, It was this idea that it would be a fully African production of the Châtelet. That was the kind of exciting nucleus of the idea that it would ha- it would be a purely African and, we, and everyone would come. And so, you know, I just started using my contacts really from Africa Express of sort of mates that I'd worked with in Congo and Mali and Nigeria. And you're doing this at peak COVID, like this is August, September no, this this tw- this 2020, start, you said? No, this started a year and a half beforehand. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the first few times I went with the director, Abdurrahman Sissoko to Mali and travelled around and had many discussions about how we could do this. And he's like a very respected film director, really interesting guy. He was a kid in Bamako in the 70s. And during that period, Mali was sort of flirting with socialism. So the uh, Russians had a cultural centre. And he used to go and just go in there and uh, used to watch russian films right and then decided that he wanted to make films himself and through that he got a scholarship to go to moscow so a malian teenager going to russian winters its right. sort of unimaginable Shame. during yeah. that austere communist period but he had a fantastic time and you know learned his craft there so and he's made some amazing films like bamako and Timbuktu. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. he made those films. Of course. So, and and there's a bit of a cross there because Fatimata Dewara, she's in Timbuktu. She stars in that. So he knows her, I know her. So she was one of the first people we got kind of interested in the idea of making this piece. Some of the amazing percussionists I've worked with over the years in Congo came over, and especially a, a guy called Cobain who makes his most amazing instruments out of rubbish yeah so i got him on board and then i got my very good friend uh, madu diabate the youngest of the diabate cora players uh, who i've worked with for years i worked with him first at the english national opera when i was doing dr d he's an amazing guy yeah and we just built it up from there i suppose when i was thinking musically it was like and you're starting to sort of play with the idea of how can you portray the history of the slave trade? You know, it's a it's not really yes very sexy. No, it's a tricky and it's a tricky thing. Sure. Just not so where, where where do you start? And I thought, well, the first people to kind of sort of travel that far were the Portuguese and that's late medieval, early Renaissance. And next to the chateau, you have Notre Dame and they have one of the most amazing early music. Choirs, you know, yeah. Peritan and all, all of that tradition of the Notre Dame tradition. In fact, the Peritan, uh, are you familiar with Peritan? No. Okay, he's basically the guy that, uh, that introduced polyphony. No way. Yeah. Okay. And, and he was such a superstar back in the day that people would travel all the way around Europe just to stand outside Notre Dame Cathedral to hear this new music that yeah. was being created where. Yeah. It wasn't all unison and there were suddenly these harmonies flying off and different melodies playing at the same time. And that was really, in a way, the moment of divergence between African uh, music and European music, really, is sort of when we started getting this kind of sort of polyphony and, and we sort of lost rhythm and we found... Harmony and melody right. more, you know, and it's right. it, I'm oversimplifying. Right. It, no, but, but it you, sounds like you, you have good. to have something to, to start with. So yeah. that's how I came up with the idea that yeah. I would use these early polyphony scholars stroke singers mm-hmm. with these amazing musicians. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we developed it from there. And Abdurrahman kind of told the story of the slave trade, the terrible, terrible story.
1: And this went on in Paris. Yeah, in, in September. the
0: last september and october how did you ever manage to pull that off well i have to say i feel like the in europe there's more sort of support for the broader sense of the arts than there there is in this country you know and you know we just got shut down here right. we were just like back of the queue guys yeah and they were really charming at points the government where, where they started issuing these uh retraining adverts where They'd show someone like a musician or a dancer, and they go, "It doesn't matter." Blah blah is going to retrain and and learn how to use computers, and everything's going to be fine. They don't need to be. Where was no. this? You mean here, yeah, here in here. this country? Okay. Yeah, there, there was this retraining in, initiative. It didn't go wow. anywhere because everyone just stuck their finger up to yeah. it and so just said, "Fuck off." Yeah, horrible Horrible, horrible, and you keep hearing sort of short news pieces about how the arts are being cast and in education. I mean, they genuinely... The, the conservatives, let's just be very clear here. My, my dad was in um, arts education in the 70s and 80s, so he was right in the centre of the storm when Thatcher appeared, Margaret yeah. Thatcher. And I, I mean, maybe not familiar to everyone around the world, but she was a very charismatic, fascinating prime minister we had who came in in 1979 after a really, really dark period of sort of quasi-socialist management from the Labour Party. So there was a real kind of uh, energy for change. But, you know, she just saw no value in the arts. And in 1979, and I can test this because my dad ran four art schools at the time... Every town in in Britain had an art school, just a little one, Mm -hmm. you know. And this was a place where if you weren't necessarily excelling uh, academically at school, but you wanted to express yourself, you were allowed to go there for at least to do a foundation course, just to get a sense of yourself. And, you know, as far as music was concerned, it was where everyone went to art school. They weren't necessarily going to become artists or fine artists but they just went there because there was just this atmosphere you know and you expression express all express things, yourself. and all the
1: things that we know that art you know there wouldn't have been there
0: wouldn't have been punk without art schools okay. so, i mean everything basically came from art schools the beatles came from art school Every, mm-hmm. that connection of the art school and british music is huge so anyway she started getting rid of them saw no use of them. and 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 you can see that thread existing today right you know they just don't value the arts right. in this country with yeah. the conservatives and it's, it's tragic. It's very similar to what happened in
1: America when Gerald Ford came yeah, in. Yeah, you and get this
0: reaction, you get this. Yeah,
1: yeah. and he shuts down, then cuts off all the funding to art schools in inner cities and then suddenly in places like the Bronx and underserved communities, there's no more music schools. But the difference there was that they just invented their own thing which became hip-hop which
0: was kind of amazing but yeah at the same time it was just like yeah well that's what punk was punk was a was a, it's always a reaction to something yeah but no i really felt it last year i just thought it was so cruel when people are like not even allowed to work then to be told on top of that there probably wasn't any point in them <laughs> waiting when, until the end of the pandemic because yeah. it'd be better if they retrained now you know, and got ahead of the curves. Just you can't tell someone who, from the age of six, has put on ballet shoes three, four times a week and dedicated themselves to becoming a dancer at the age of eighteen, when they're just about to like launch themselves into their lives, yeah. that they need to retrain. It's just not. No. It's, and, and it's not are. nice, and it's. Uh, I don't want to live in a world where everybody's staring at a computer. It's also very short-sighted because
1: like a year from now or six months or whenever it is, like all those institutions and theatres and ballet and opera houses are going to open back up and what, we're going to put computer programmers on stage? Exactly, exactly,
0: exactly. So anyway, going back to Paris and and Germany as well, but there's just the arts in general and especially the sort of festival arts, there's a lot more kind of patronage.
1: Where did you put on the opera in Paris? Uh, Châtelet. Okay. And they were regular crowds were able to come in and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, we were allowed to do it for five nights, all sold out. Obviously, there was a bit of a social distancing. But yeah, on the last night, everyone was dancing and up, out of their seats, masks were off. It was, in fact, Macron's wife caught COVID because she came to that and she got it afterwards. I don't know if they were connected, but... wow. She's all right. Okay. Yeah, but no, no, <laughs> I'm not responsible.
1: But you were saying that it's crazy that like you had choirs, you had musicians, you had horn players, all this thing, and nobody yeah. got sick. No, nobody got sick.
0: Too. It was miraculous. It really was. I, every morning I woke up yeah. and I was like, right, today we're going to get closed down. There's yeah. no way we're going to yeah. we we're, we're going to get through to the end, and we did. And they're going to next year they're doing it again, so that would be nice. It was lovely. In a year where there were so few opportunities for musicians to yeah. do anything, it was an amazing thing to do.
1: Because you've composed quite a few operas and I saw Monkey was at the Royal Opera House, right? Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you because I was so fascinated. I mean, A, you, you don't have formal, like you didn't go to music school no. and learn composition or these things. No,
0: but I, well, I, I got to grade eight. Okay. I didn't pass what is grade, grade eight. I don't know. Grade that. eight, there's this system where it's not a good system. Okay. It's, it's a system that the Royal School of Music created and you go from grade one to grade eight. Okay. So that's you know.
1: grade eight's up there. You, yeah, yeah, after okay. grade you that, eight, then
0: okay. you can teach. Okay. Oh. You can teach piano, okay. but I, I only managed grade seven. And then there was a particular Mozart sonata on the grade eight syllabus, and there were just three chords. And I just, I hit on these, this little progression It was definitely a major to minor thing. And I literally kind of froze. It was just so strong and affecting to me that I couldn't finish the rest of the piece. And I was just like, no, this will last me for quite a few years, just these three chords. Thank you. So I, I, I kind of... Was this like in a
1: like a public performance? You were being no, graded on it. No, no, was just not, not that dramatic. It? When
0: I was learning, oh, so when you were I, learning. Oh. Yeah, I was just learning it, and and at that point, That's... I kind of my my classical training ended.
1: Yeah, you're like, this is all I need. Yeah, oh, this is all I. This is this, all, I, this, this is this is, do,
0: this is doing it for me. That yeah.
1: reminds me, one time I went to L.A. I was seeing this girl for like a few years, and she, I'm not trying to make this sound overly tragic, but she like dumped me on the doorstep as I went to our house, I hadn't seen her in a while. So I was like, well, what the fuck am I going to do in LA? This is I was in my early 20s. I didn't have enough money to change the plane ticket. I was like, I'm here for three days. So I went and bought a cheap piano, electric piano, and a Stevie Wonder songbook. And I didn't really know how to read music that well. I would even have to write the notes on the staff. So when I was coming back to remember the chords, and the chords are kind of complicated, but I was playing this song, Superwoman, Where Were yeah. You When I Needed You. And in the middle, I played six chords, and I was like, "This is all I need." Like they were like <laughs> exactly. magic chords yeah, in the middle. It's, it's
0: that moment. Right. It's, it's a eureka moment, isn't yeah. it? You know, you're just like, "I get it now." This has touched me in the way I need. Yeah. I need this. Yeah, and it was it was amazing. And really. how
1: old were we – Is this is this college? Is this university? When you're doing the grade eight, like yeah, what? and
0: I did A level music, which is the sort of the pre-university exams, and I failed that okay and i made a terrible mistake of telling my daughter that i'd failed music she just never let that one go okay you know and used it against me when in her own education (laughs) tip to young parents don't brag about things that you don't want your kids to emulate because they will yeah
1: It seems like all of Damon's career milestones have been projects launched by a mix of curiosity and a very strong desire to challenge himself. Case in point, Gorillas. Hmm, American hip-hop seems interesting. I wonder what it'd be like to switch gears and make some beat-focused music. Then he discovers the music of Tumami Diabate and travels to meet the maestros of Mali, an Africa Express is born. He tries his hand at an opera using Chinese instrumentation and the completely foreign star system of Chinese notation. I mean, that's fucking crazy. All these things come from an insane thirst for the new and just as importantly, the willingness to humble yourself and start from the bottom. My favorite story about Quincy Jones is how he strived his whole life to achieve commercial success and he finally gets it with his hits with Leslie Gore and then he goes and completely checks out of the game to go study Counterpoint and Classical with Nadia Boulanger Unworried of whether his spot was still going to be there when he got back It was, and we might not have off the wall without that studying he did The idea of putting aside rockstar ego to further your learning, so impressive it's something Damon continues to do. And I believe we, the listener, are certainly the better for it. I didn't realize that you did have some kind of formal training. Yeah, but, but
0: that was it. That yeah. was it. And, and I was always rubbish at sight reading. I mean, I can, but it's like, it's, yeah. God, it's slow. Yeah. And I think when um, I started working with people like Tony Allen, that was the big shift for me it was a paradigm shift really in how I approached music and you know and then when I first went to Mali and my first night when I arrived in Bamako I was driven to Tamani Diabati's house and I bought my melodica what
1: year is this 2000 okay
0: 1999 2000 and I was invited into this room and there was no one else in this room but me and then Tamani comes in in his wonderful robe, and sits down, and we have a a small conversation. Nothing.
1: Just because I'm a little ignorant. If you had to give an equivalent of Tumani, who Tuma, like equivalent in like Western music is okay. Tumani, like okay. The John Lennon okay. Of.
0: Yeah. He he's a jelly. They're also referred to as griot. Okay. And it's a musical tradition, like the Dear Diabati families who play the kora, which is the 21-string yeah. African harp. And the kind of centerpiece of African classical music in West Africa, they can trace, and this this is crazy. They can trace back their family playing the kora eighty generations. So, you know, they've been yeah. they've been active for yeah. a very long yeah.
1: time. There is no equivalent of that, yeah. In the West, I understand. And, and
0: and and they're a caste. They're uh, they're different from other cars, It's very right. very caste system, right. They're sort of in there with the sorcerers and the sort of herbalists. They're, you know, needed and revered, but slightly distrusted as well because they're playing with, you know, especially in the sort of the post-pagan Muslim era, they can connect with the jinn and Okay. You know, so, so it's complicated. Okay, yeah. So I arrive at his house, and he's the top of that clan, of the Dibati griots. And I sit down there, and I've got my melodica, and he's got his his amazing cora, and he starts playing. And I'm expected, you know, because I've come there on this musical odyssey, really. It was the beginning of an odyssey. (laughs) The only problem is that I wasn't, you know, really... The melodica is an immovable object. There's no... It's like the piano. It's like you're either tuning to it or... Yeah. And there's no way that the head of the Barty clan is going to tune to my instrument, but I can't tune to his. And I'm just really, really, really just off, but in a way that nothing sings, you know what I mean? Yeah, It's the most painful experience of my life. But I got through it and, you know, it got better. It got better after that. And I I, I sort of – I was so lucky. I I just used to go and sit in clubs with people playing and and, uh, sit at the back of the stage and just play. No one could hear me. I was just Mm -hmm. playing – and just listening, 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 listening. And slowly, and especially playing with Tony as well, where his rhythm is so elusive sometimes. It's just, how the fuck, where is the downbeat sometimes? Yeah. It's just crazy. We should definitely talk about Tony Allen, because people obviously love
1: him. I mean, Fela, out some of the greatest music ever recorded. yeah. But, and you know it way more because you play with him. Technically, like... He really invented like a, like Fela was actually playing a different kind of music until he hooked up with Tony, right? And yep. all those rhythms that we love from Fela, that really comes from Tony. totally Tony. It's yeah. all Tony. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you had to technically describe it, it's like he's Okay, take Bode got no get enemy or whatever. Like that's one of my favorite Fela. I mean, I guess that's one that everybody knows, but the way he's playing the drums in that, it sounds like he has eight hands yeah. and there is no way to sit still when you hear it. It's some of the most joyful, also dancing music, but also so fucking intellectual. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. It's cosmic. Yeah. Do
1: you remember the first time, like what, I mean, you
0: probably knew about Fela for a while, but what was the first like Tony records that you really just remember being like, Uh, holy shit. Well, yeah, I mean, the first thing that that blew my mind was Zombie. Mm -hmm. Couldn't believe the drops in that. Yeah. It's just one of the most exciting bits of recorded music ever, yeah. I think, to this day. Yeah. Well, the first time I played with him, it's actually a really funny story because um, I'd done this tune with Blur called Music Is My Radar and the chorus was Tony Allen Got Me Dancing. Yeah. It was one of our more obscure tunes. Yeah. But someone told him that this kid had written this song which kind of cited him as, as the, I don't know, I mean... I've never been a great dancer, so, you know what I mean? And I wouldn't really even qualify it as dancing. Yeah. He got me moving, at least. He was in London, and he invited me to come to the studio. So I I went there one evening, and uh, he was this legend sitting there and rolled a joint. At that time, I couldn't smoke the weed that he smoked. The first time I tried it, I was in pieces and very confused. Okay. wanted to go home yeah
1: this wasn't the local like west london stash he was bringing this in with him
0: no but i mean he just taught me to smoke weed grass okay. but properly mm-hmm. you know what i mean In, i think he taught me kind of how to use it to make music and he was very militant about that over the years if like because i've never really enjoyed smoking weed if i'm really hung over yeah and he'd make me Really? Yeah, he'd make okay. me do it. He'd make he, me do he it. Because he'd say, well, yes. we yes. access something. Yes. Very, very, very militant about yeah. that. But this first time, so it ended up being this tune on Home Cooking, the album. And then there was this opportunity to play it on French TV. And I'd also been working with Ibrahim uh, Ferrer on his record. And it turned out it was a double header. French TV, live TV program with Ibrahim Ferrer from the Buena Vista Social yeah. Club and then Tony Allen, and I happened to be on both their records. Right. So they were like, hey, why don't you just do both sets? <laughs> so I I start, I'm very excited, obviously, go to Paris. I'm playing, oh, my God, what? Yeah, two legends. What, like, what a gig. Real what, legends, yeah. What, what a gig. Yeah. <laughs> so I do the first one with Ibrahim and it goes really well and I'm really pleased and there's like a 2 hour turnover and then this guy called you may may remember remember Ray Cokes no he was a massive presenter on MTV okay. and then he, his surname got the better of him okay. and uh, he fell from grace yes um, <laughs> but he gave me this bottle of Martinique white rum as a present after I came off stage with Ibrahim and I made yeah and Tony wanted me to smoke and I had the rum and the smoke. By the time we got on stage for Tony, and this was in front of a live audience on TV, I couldn't find my downbeat. I could not start, know when to come in. I was just lost. I was just like a a small child lost in the forest. What's she, of rhythm. What instrument were you on? I wasn't, I was just singing. Oh, you were just singing. I was just singing. Oh, and shit. I couldn't, I just couldn't find yeah. it. And I was like, anyway, I kind of gave up. And then... I don't know what possessed me to do it, but I went round the back of Tony and got on the back of his drum seat and put my arms around him and f- passed out. Wow. And he did the next tune with me, like, asleep. Anyway, I don't remember anything else yeah. of that night. Next morning, I'm in bed and my tour manager comes into the room and I look up at him. I remember is so clear. I look up and I went, that went well, didn't it? And, and he's, he's looking down at <laughs> me he's going... You know, shaking his head, not saying anything. Yeah. And that, you know, you know when you get that fear, it's like, yeah. what yeah. the fuck yeah. did I do? Because you're on the. Not only, not only what did I do, but what did I do on French TV? Yeah. <laughs> so it was explained to me that I'd done that and then I just sort of stumbled off and passed out, and that was the end of it. So I rang him up immediately. In fact, I ran the whole band up to got so mortified yeah and he was so cool about it and we became best friends i mean you know and he became like teacher and brother father figure everything to me you know one of the dearest people i've ever ever known in my life yeah
1: and he was kind of like i mean i guess if you had to say if there was like a seed at the beginning of The good, the bad, and the queen. Even though it took a lot of things, was it probably your friendship and your musical relationship? Tony was like the ground
0: floor, and then well, it's hilarious. The first few kind of sort of sessions with Paul Simon. it's two immovable objects. Yeah, (laughs) Tony, who's definitely in the right when it comes to rhythm. Yes, he will not change. You know, and Paul's going, "Well, we should do it this way." And they used to have some terrible falling outs but they'd always somehow find common ground in a bottle of whiskey at the end of the i mean evening but i mean really really yeah. it'd be sometimes it was embarrassing i mean you were embarrassed watching this and they used to get really ratty with each other also <laughs> <was> like hilarious
1: <laughs> as much as like Simon is a fucking icon and like for somebody who was 24 playing like whatever radio class straight to hell london college some of the most iconic i think that that the way he comes in on London Calling, yeah. I don't think there's a more iconic sort of off-the-cuff intro to a song than just going do-do, do like like because it's all the riff, right? Paul Simon is obviously
0: like this legend and icon. Most but- dramatic, he's the most dramatic bass player right. ever, but locking in with a bass drum, well, They're more problematic.
1: <laughs> I would think, like, coming into a room, like, no matter how much of an icon, and you just see Tony Allen there, you're not going to argue, right? You're just going to be like, okay, when it comes to rhythm, like, I will defer to you, but you're saying Paul was... No, but it's actually really not... hard
0: to play with Tony. Yeah. That's the thing. It just take just took him time to, yeah. to sort of... But, you know, we, we got there in the end. We got there in the end.
1: And also, Paul, you mentioned that Fader interview, like, he hadn't played bass. He hadn't really played music. He was full-on just doing... Art for 15 years, and yeah. you just called him up, and you're like, hey, like, fancy coming out of retirement. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. That's not an yeah. oversimplification. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: yeah. He, he came to the first ever Gorillaz gig at the... What's it called? Scarlet. Oh, Scarlet, Coca- exactly, where we played behind a screen. And that was the first time I met him, yeah, and we, we got on really well. And, I mean, you know, he's one of the reasons why I moved to West London in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So to actually have a drink with paul Simon. i mean you know it's close to god
1: yeah <laughs> i in my like little time even though i mostly grew up in new york i, I did live in west london for like a little while and you, if you would just see him in the pub like like i don't think that there is like a more iconic londoner living like better looking just like radiates all that shit that, like, men want to be, women want to be with, like, all of that, like, he's just such a badass. I think even in that Fader thing, like, somebody calls him the best-looking
0: man in England. I mean, he was doing Dior ads in his 50s, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, no, he's still fantastic. You know, he's another of my dearest friends. Yeah.
1: And then you kept playing with him, right?
0: Then you made him part of Gorillaz. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was kind of having two members of The Clash in your band not bad yeah i mean it was an interesting tour bus oh that really one. was there like some old like unsettled like mm. clash? Uh, oh there's definitely a, a little bit of atmosphere between mick and paul but well i mean there's a lot of stories which yeah. are not really yeah appropriate for the okay podcast <laughs> yeah I, t- I would tell you in a different circumstance <laughs>
1: I just think of, like, the bass line to Radio Clash. Like, who else would think to go do do doon, 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 yeah. It's, like, so, like, geometric and aggressive. No one, like yeah. no one sounds like Paul. No one sounds like Paul.
0: I never cease loving hearing him yeah. play. It's just...
1: Talking about, like, a Serbic Englishman, I always wondered if tony ever talked about his relationship with ginger baker with you because that's obviously ginger baker like watching the doc and all that thing you're like this is a man who like absolutely loved no one and was like kind of horrible to every single person except tony allen yeah
0: yeah i always thought ginger baker was really cool because he drove a range rover from algiers all the way down to lagos yeah I'd love to do that, but yeah. it's like yeah. a lot of fun. You wouldn't be able to do it now, but no. back in the day, he drove the car all the way across the Sahara, and he just couldn't do it, that's too dangerous. Yeah.
1: But did Tony ever talk about, like, Ginger, like his uh, relationship or yeah,
0: really? um, yeah, he was cool with Ginger. Right. I mean, they made some amazing music together. Yeah. I think Ginger gave Tony a run for his money in the wild, man of the drums. Right. Because see, Tony doesn't on the surface seem like he's wild, but... You try and keep up with him. Yeah. I mean, I just couldn't believe it when I was got the phone call that he died. It's just like, no, he hasn't. You're talking yeah. about impossible. I mean, I was with him like four weeks before he died, and he was – I swear to God that it's, it's because he didn't play the drums for a month. Mm-hmm. It all just caught up with him. Yeah. He needed that sort of aerobic kind of subtle thing and that connection with the universe to keep him – because he was like Superman. Yeah. We called him Super Elf. Yeah. Because he's just... <laughs>
1: just like how he could keep up mean, drinking smoking. I mean, on the last
0: tour we did with The Good Man The Queen, there was this huge great <clears throat> in the middle of the night and he'd rolled out of his second tier bunk on the tour bus. And everyone was terribly worried about him, but he was absolutely fine. <laughs> but he was always last to bed. Yeah. Always last to bed.
1: How old was he when
0: he passed? He was about... A month off his 80th birthday. Okay. And it was very sad because we'd organized this big birthday bash at the Abbott Hall for last November. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was going to be a real party, but sadly we never got there.
1: I'm sorry, I know I know you guys were super close.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I love talking about him because I literally have only incredible memories. Yeah. He changed my life. Yeah. I mean, I know I sang in that song, Tony Allen Got Me Dancing, but, wow, well, what he did to me after that was... Yeah, it transformed me. It, yeah, he taught me how to play with my ears, truly. And
1: so not only did he like change your approach to like rhythm and stuff playing for them, it like literally just like gave you
0: a shift in the way you thought about music everything, and composing. Yeah. yeah, just how I am as a person, right, changed me.
1: You're never too accomplished or too far down your path to let a mentor in. And it's obvious Tony's effect on Damon was far more than just polyrhythms. Tony was a special man, touched even. And he obviously left an imprint on Damon spiritually. I feel extremely lucky to have been around, to have worked with quite a few of my heroes, sometimes just interviewing them for this podcast. The truly magic ones have this zen-like ease with how they talk, how they can look at their life, the failures and successes. Maybe it's because they've had the successes, they're more at ease, more secure in their skin. I don't know. All I know is I want to be like them when I grow up. But the more I've been around these people, I've realized sometimes the best thing to do is shut up and listen. Also, Danger Mouse, who you work with on that Good The Bad The Queen record, I think that right about the time I got to be friends with him, I think he had just come back from making the second Gorillaz album with you. Mm. I, remember, I never heard anyone say something like that. I was asking him what he was working on next, and he's like, "I just used all my sounds on the Gorillas record." I think he just wanted to like do such a good job. Really? And I think it was so he exciting. He did a good job. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that he was somebody that like I think like every single snare sound, every kick sound that he had, anything that he thought he had that was like any good. Yeah. I've never heard anyone say that they were like sonically exhausted <laughs> before. I was kind of jealous as well, because I just met him around the time the Grey album would come out, and he was really cool, we had a rapport, we were both, like, kind of guys that, like, hadn't made it yet, but, like, liked a lot of the same shit, Yeah, and he was just, like, suddenly, like, his sonic sparring partners are you, Beck, Jack, like, out the gate, he's just, like, smashing it, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. How did you did you discover him because of hearing some production that he did on it was great other album. records? It was a great yeah, album. Yeah, it was a
0: great album. I right. just thought, that's great. He likes the Beatles and Jay-Z. Um, that worked for me. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure we can do something together. And yeah. He was still sort of an unknown, really. Yeah, and, he was. Uh, yeah, I got on really well with him. We had a great time. And then he did the first <laughs> Good the Bad and the Queen album. I took him down to Devon. Now, that was a culture shot for him. Because back in those days, my place down there was quite basic. Yeah. And uh, as I say, you, once you go there, you can't leave. And, no, and there's this, no
1: bars to go to hang out, pick up girls. You,
0: you can't leave. Yeah. You're making it sound like Wicker Man. Is it like it's, a little it's a bit? bit like that. Yeah, okay. Definitely. Yeah. I told him you, you you can't leave till you finish this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also like
1: Devon in summer and Devon in winter like two different things. Just for backdrop. Where is this? Very, is this in the very, cold? Very cold.
0: I, yeah, I mean, the, the record I'm playing at Glastonbury, I did in January, this January in my barn and I had two other musicians there and we were just wearing parkas it was dusty and freezing everyone ended up with lung problems, yeah. <laughs> it was like awful but I'm kind of glad we did it because it's creates a great atmosphere on the record but yeah, no, Brian had a yeah, and, and at the same time, he so he was down there doing that, but he also had crazy about to to come yeah. out, you know. Yeah. He was itching to get back, you yeah. know what I mean? He was like, yeah. "I'm," and I was like, you can't leave. Right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you're not leaving till you finish this, because I know as soon as you leave, you're not coming back. Of course. You know, and he never came back. I, I mean, I've seen him since, but I, I had his undivided attention for a while. Yeah. And, and I really benefited from it, so I was very grateful for that. Yeah. And I'm sure the three or four months with you in Devon was
1: like compared to three years in Ireland with you two, probably now it looks like a cakewalk. Oh, well, I mean, a- no, no, like no slight to you two at all. I just remember no, like no, seeing no. him when he was doing that record. I think he was allowed, like, it was almost like shore leave. Like when you're a sailor and he'd come to London and we'd go out and have like a wild night because then he'd be going back to
0: Dublin or wherever they were. And it was like back in lockdown. Yeah, but just a lot richer.
1: A little, yeah. (laughs) Probably not like a bond.
0: When I say it was back in those days, it was very basic down in Devon, and I can't imagine they'd ever have lived that basically. But you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong.
1: No, I'm sure you're right. In that fate article, it mentions the fact that. um, the good, the bad. The Queen record was going in a different direction until you hooked up with Danger Mouse. Like it was leaning a lot more into the polyrhythms, and like you joked that Brian said one song sounded too Lion King or something. Like he had a bit
0: of an influence on that. Yeah, well, in. well, uh, Tony wasn't happy at all with. He was very pissed off with Brian, right? <laughs> because Brian chopped his drums up. Yeah, which is you don't do right? <laughs> you just don't, you don't do do that. It. Yeah. do that. I wouldn't do it now, but he was still kind of, you know, and it's good to be fearless like that. Yeah. You know,
1: it's good. I envy that about Brian too. Like I could just tell like, and I feel like that's why people like you and Jack White and whoever else and you two and these people that are probably used to having people kiss their kids or else are just like, you just know it. You don't suffer fools. And I always, he would just never be afraid to just be in a room and be like, no nah, I don't like that Like, and I, I think that I just yeah, don't no. quite have that I feel like you kind of have that you have this brutally honest thing that like is also I think is yeah it's something that I don't have that I've always envied just the thing to be able to be like no that shit Amy Winehouse for sure had that and Goodness she gracious. she actually taught me like a super valuable lesson I remember one time I played her a demo of something I thought she would like and it was like the fifth day of demoing Back to Black and she, she we were in such a rhythm I was like spoiled and I was like I know she likes now everything. Yeah, yeah, I did yeah, yeah. Play this thing. She goes, no, uh-huh. don't, don't, don't like it. So uh-huh. then I start desperately muting things in it. You know, just like you're just scrambling it. Like, Maybe I'll take the shaker. Like I, I know, and it's then not that, though. you can't. And, it's it's not, not and that. she just goes, why are you trying to fix something that's shit? Like you know, in her way and a thing. Weird, and I was like, it's a weird
0: thing a what you lesson. can sing over and what you can't sing over. I remember Major Lazer desperate for me to do something. And they gave me this stuff, and I tried for three days yeah. to do something. I yeah. tried everything. At one point, I think I'd stacked about ninety vocals yeah. together, just to do, and I just couldn't do it. Yeah, I couldn't do it because I didn't connect with it. Yeah. And if you don't connect with something, you can't do it. it you know it what did. I mean? The thing that the scenario and it's chords, so the basic. Yeah. It's like the connection is such a basic thing. And it it's got no it's no reflection on their music no. or anything. It's just whether you connect with yeah. with them or not. You know. Uh, but I it also, was funny I was like after three days I felt like I'd been deep in a mind trying to find something and yeah. I just couldn't find it but at least I knew I'd tried yeah of course yeah there's something about that
1: also when someone sends you a track and I'm sure you've been on the other end of it but you've probably been the guy sending the track sometimes when you, you think almost so much that somebody's gonna love this because it sounds like them, that it's yeah, the no, exact no, no, opposite and, that, no, and no. that's the thing and,
0: but, but also I've done stuff with people and I've just gone that's not very good Mm-hmm. i can't use this yeah i mean that's it's never nice i've been on the <laughs> i've been on the other side of it as well where you've gone kind of, uh um, oh, yeah are they uh using the uh tra- oh no they've it's not been used in- yeah oh, okay because it was shit yeah <laughs> with the gorilla stuff
1: because those are some of like the wildest collabs and i know you're like a guy that doesn't like to sit and like get shower with compliments but i do think that like the basis of like the last 20 years anytime there's been a project that's like left of center collabs and like something avant-garde and and like putting people together that should never be on the track i do think that like if it wasn't for gorillas that wouldn't be such a palatable thing but mm. when you're creating the gorillas stuff are you usually writing with those people in the room? Are they? Are you sending a track uh, it out? It
0: depends. I mean, at the moment, I'm doing a carnival EP for this Amazing. year's carnival. I bought a pan orchestra, but I didn't buy the top end of it. I only bought the big bass bins. Yeah. So everything I've played on it, it's inevitably melancholic because it's just low and sad sounding, even though it's major. It's all major. Yeah. It just sounds sad. So I'm obviously delighted with with the sound. So, first person I got was Dawn Penn. Amazing. Who was sitting there two weeks ago. But I mean, I just love it. You know, you've worked with shitloads of people as well. Everyone's process is different. Yeah. It's just fascinating. And and you, and, but the more you work with people, the more relaxed you get into the way they're doing it. And sometimes, you know, you, you don't even know what you're getting at the time. Yeah. Because you're so sort of caught up in the moment of that person being there, and actually, the red light goes on, and but yes, yeah, you don't even know what it is. But she sang for about three, four hours. Because I've been doing this Glastonbury, getting this Glastonbury thing. I haven't gone back to it, but next week I get back to that. I've got three hours of Dawn Penn to go through, to go through, and do something, make something really exciting from. It's funny because I'm just a producer, so that's
1: all I'm supposed to really do is like be attuned to somebody else's rhythm and be able to just blend in, fit, be malleable, whatever it's going to take to like suddenly be a part of that person's world. But you're kind of an artist really first, so you've got both talents. You can be that person who's got to write and do the thing from scratch. Yeah. And then you also have to learn to like suddenly be completely feeding off of doing Yeah, I really rhythm. enjoy
0: it though. You know, I really enjoy producing and I've done some stuff for slow tie recently and for one of the slaves actually i've done it for both of the slaves but it's really interesting what you can actually you know and you've seen when it really 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 hits hard you know what i mean it's amazing not being the person right the and just seeing it's, yeah. a, it's a real thrill yeah. actually i enjoy it just as much as being a an artist yeah because
1: i guess to the gorillas records you're both you're half artist half yeah producer, which would be an incredibly smooth segue into the first fader cover, which was just as you were kind of making the first gorillas record, as opposed to the good the Bad the Queen article, which is like this really well written kind of deep essay. The first one about the gorillas, it's almost like an annoying blurb
0: well well the thing with that is that we really tried to be totally anonymous uh, okay. I mean, that was the dream. I mean, it was all set up like that. Yeah. But we stupidly, Jamie and I thought, and Remy, we thought we'd be the voices of the cartoons as well. But, you know, that's, it's all right. It's a nice idea, but it's actually quite hard to be a character actor for a cartoon. It's not. Right. And I remember we were doing our first interview. uh, I think the first ever interview was for Rolling Stone or Spin. We were on the telephone in character, and I just couldn't do it after about five minutes. And I just said, Look, you know what? I, I, it's, I'm, and I told him who I was, and Jamie was so angry.
1: Oh, they didn't even know you literally no. were saying you were Russell. Yeah, you were yeah. A I, I was 2D, obviously. 2D. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he was so angry. Right. He sp- pissed off with me yeah. properly pissed off yeah
1: with me. is he just a better voice actor or he was just like no just he just
0: like was, yeah. he didn't have any history beforehand of course so anyway we removed that to a different department but yeah back in the day it took a while to sort of work out how to manage it you know i mean i would have ideally it would have been great if i'd have been managed to uh still be be like banksy yeah. now you know what yeah. i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> Not possible.
1: It, even on the cover of that fader issue, it is you and Jamie. It's not like,
0: it's not the yeah, cover of stuff. The thing right. is, we gave up, and then not that I was really carrying a lot of cachet in America at the time, yeah. so it wasn't yeah. like a big deal. I mean, as to this day, people still don't know who I am right. in America, which is great. Right. It's fantastic. I wanted to talk about. I've totally forgot Well, I was
1: listening back to that album and reading that article the other day. I was just like Dell, like all the Dell yeah, shit, especially the second album. I know he had the first hit with Mr. Double Eater and that was like a kind of MTV hit a bit more because it was catchy, a little more gimmicky, but No Need for Alarm, that second he's album. He's amazing. He's really... He's re- fucking incredible. He's Actually, really, how much re- I love
0: he, He's really, really special. Yeah. He's a, he's a lovely, strange human being.
1: Right. Yeah, so like math mind too. Very, yeah, very,
0: very, he's very other.
1: And it was very like uh, ultra black consciousness. There was a lot of rhymes I remember singing along to as a kid, like, if you're white, then you're not the right one. Like, but it didn't matter. Like, but I hadn't, except for Brand Newbean, really, ever heard anyone like wasn't a fan of anyone who's political and like their stance was so pro black. And like everything about it was just, but that song, No Catch a Bad One, with that cello fucking intro and all that shit so were you listening to a lot of american underground hip-hop at that time just before you did gorillas or had
0: you been listening that, to dan introduced ages? me to okay to, to Dell.
1: okay and how did you discover dan
0: i think we just sort of put a message out that we were trying something out and yeah he, he came over and it's a similar sort of thing you're not leaving until
1: right <laughs> yeah <laughs> Cause I think I take for granted because I moved to the states when I was eight, so like hip hop was so it's just a much more a part of your growing up. It's just constantly around. Yeah, Maybe no, and, no, not not here, here not, at And it's not not here, and certainly not in like the crazy, you know, the rip hop era where you guys are basically mm. like kings, and it's there wasn't. Oh God, no. It there was wasn't a lot of not um, even a whiff. Right, and also. The is saying now it doesn't seem as crazy to do like a bit of a wild left field project, but like for you to leave Blur at the absolute peak of this thing and then do this beats-driven thing is like, now it's hard to imagine there was a time when that was like, what the fuck is he I doing? I know, now
0: everyone does it, right? Right. But yeah. it, it really hey, must No, have at the been time like, it, was. it was. It was like an entirely different world. Yeah. And it was very exhilarating. I mean, I, I remember the first time I got introduced to hip-hop, was actually in John Cohen's, back of John Cohen's car. I was so hungover, he picked me up at the hotel and I had to do a, a radio show in uh, Brooklyn or something.
1: On like leisure, leisure? On, uh, uh, a,
0: bit, a bit later, maybe modern life is rubbish. Okay. And I said, can I travel in your boot, please? So he put me, literally. Because you me,
1: wanted to lay down, you were so hung
0: And he played the first Tribe Called Quest album. And oh, shit. I just listened to oh, it in wow. this subterranean oh, boot traveling through, wow. <laughs> through Manhattan. Wow. Yeah, that was my introduction. And
1: that is such an amazing musical, like, there's so much music. Like, to hear that as your first real, like, Yeah, yeah hip-hop, yeah, that, driving that, around that, New York, I can imagine. Yeah,
0: it was a strong... Strong thing, but there was no no way to express that in Blur at all. Yeah. So you know, it just took years before. Yeah. Basically, Gorillaz was just me going back, just using synthesizers, just doing exactly what I did, but drum machines, synthesizers.
1: Driving up and down the East Coast, crammed into a car, listening to Tribe Called Quest. I can't think of a more glorious storybook introduction to the best of American music at that moment. The music booming out of car windows in New York in the 90s. It was tried. Wu-Tang, Biggie. I'll never forget hearing the Fuji's the score for the first time in my friend's white Nissan Pathfinder. There was no more signature way to hear New York rap in the 90s than the car stereo. I guess the difference is most of us probably heard it and ran and told a friend or made a beeline for the record store. Damon hears it and it leads to Gorillas, one of the most beloved, not actually real, pop groups of all time. Again, it's one of the things that drives him, the ability and the balls to go, what's that? I wanna try that. And then add that ability to write massive hooks that festival goers will sing on many continents. That's Damon's superpower, combining those points of reference with his own melodic instincts. That's what made Gorillaz so next level. Say something in the article because the guy. uh, No disrespect to this whoever wrote this piece, but it has this kind of like snarky attitude because obviously Blur like the biggest thing in the world, and it's like it's kind of being a little diminishing. And you just say it's about songs at the end of the day, right? It's songs, and that's why that's what they are. They're all incredible songs, and they just happen to be overbeats. And I remember um, thinking of something that you said to me. First of all, actually, I forgot. I was at the Marquee for your first ever show right. on the Leisure right. Tour because right. I was such a huge fan of "There's No Other Way," and I was like a kid living in New York. But you said something at a festival we both played at in 2015, and it was like the Uptown Funk year and everything. And you just said something I don't know if you remember. You're like, you're probably having the best year in music, huh? Like this year. <laughs> and You said it like in, a, in like a nice way and like a kind of cheers, but like that could have only been said by somebody who's also experience the same thing like I can't help but think like 2001 to make a left field hit that becomes the biggest global international smash yeah of like the thing must have just yeah it was
0: it was good it was fun yeah you know? I mean you know and the longer you stay in this business the more you realize that these things are not to be taken for granted yeah. <laughs> it, you know and yeah and so you get into your thing really and you just make music f- for the love of it. And yeah. um, I mean, that's a privilege, but it's also available to everyone really.
1: The, the, I remember even that song was so big like in America, cause I was DJing in America that like, in the crowds I was playing in like hip hop clubs, they hadn't like the two step in the UK garage thing really hadn't happened. And that was something I was only getting when I come over here and I'd hear bits of it. But I went to that club subterranean it, rotation mm. And I heard them play the Egg Case remix. And like Jody yeah. Harry was so big as a song, the hook, that you could play that. You East. could play two steps suddenly in New York clubs. Yeah, yeah. Because that shit was just so like yeah. instant. It was pretty well, cool. Well,
0: I mean, it's uh, it took a long time for, for UK hip-hop to become what it's become yeah. today. But I mean, n- now, I mean, it rules, basically. It is. It really rules.
1: When American hip-hop, stopped being as big as it was and there were no longer any UK artists that really sounded American. And no, or yeah. And, they, and they... it was just, and suddenly Drake is putting gigs and skeptic people on songs. You're like, oh shit, this is now more exciting yeah. than like the thing that it came yeah. from. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, the system in this country just didn't, didn't enable people to, to do anything more than just a one-off thing and now they've got careers, which is brilliant. Yeah.
1: And you said you've been working with Slow Tie...
0: Yeah, yeah, I love Slow Slotar, he's yeah. wonderful, he's just, he's a joy to work with, yeah. he's open to anything and really smart and he's, he's got that thing at the moment where anything he does sounds good.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's <laughs> in that zone. So the new record that you're going to be playing, Glastonbury.
0: I got asked a few years ago by a French festival director, you can do anything, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I've got this wonderful house that I built. 20 years ago in Iceland outside of Reykjavik that overlooks the sea and overlooks this mountain Essia and in the distance you've got the Schneefell volcano and glacier so it's the most exquisite place and I just always wanted to get a small chamber orchestra in there and just and basically play the outlines of what you could see outside and so it started like that and I was quite far into it and then lockdown happened so I took a lot of the workshop orchestral stuff and then I went to Devon and I just made another solo record basically and, you know, just kind of sort of expressed how I felt over last year, really. Simple as that. So it's the opportunity to play this new piece. So that's what I'm doing on Wednesday.
1: Right. In my one year, my great year, 2015, I remember having the best time ever at Glastonbury because we played on the Friday night. So the rest of the time, you're just like, Well, there's nothing like having a tune,
0: playing a big stage at a moment when you've got the tune. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing.
1: So by Monday morning at the Stone Circle, which is the classic (laughs) thing when the thing comes up, like I was still there, like everybody was my best friend.
0: It's it's wonderful. Yeah.
1: But um, I was driving past on the way here and I saw the billboard for Glastonbury and then it reminded me of like reading some articles when you were rehearsing for the Plastic was it Plastic Beach when you headlined Plastic Brothers yeah and
0: I mean that was a, a strange thing because at that point we'd only done these six gigs at the Apollo in Harlem yeah we hadn't done anything since 2001 because Dim Days were so big that we didn't need to tour yeah. and we had young kids and everything so coming back you know we had this huge band now Hypnotic Brass Two members of the Clash, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Bobby Womack, Snoop, yeah. uh, Lou Reed. Yeah. Ridiculous yeah. band. Yeah. Ridiculous band. Jamie and I had kind of made a decision that I wouldn't do my frontman thing. Because yeah. the year before, I'd headlined with Blur and it'd been the most amazing, yeah. you know, experience. And then you two, uh, Bono fell off his bike and they had to counsel. Glastonbury, yes. and we were asked, and I thought, all right, well, I'll headline it two yeah. years in a row with two different yeah. bands. Yeah. Why not? But we hadn't made that transition to headlining huge festivals. Right. So that night, I didn't talk to the audience because I thought it was self explanatory. But when you've got 200,000 people out there, you need to be explaining, ladies and gentlemen. Lou Reed, yeah. because otherwise Lou Reed goes on stage and they don't know don't who, know it's who it Lou is. Reed, yeah. So uh, it was a great experiment, but the next weekend we played Ross same yeah. headline spot, and I did the full yeah. up front man and yeah. introducing him, and it was incredible, incredible. Yeah. So... It was a really a steep learning curve, that. I remember seeing it,
1: yeah. I remember seeing you headline a festival in uh, Miami by
0: then, and then. It was a great show, I'm sure. Yeah, no, no, up, no. We've got it now. We've got it now. But it's a big thing yeah. to learning the the craft of, of headlining festivals. Once you've got it, you got it. Yeah. But it is a transition. The thing I remember was, like,
1: the reading. Someone had obviously come to interview while you were in the middle of the last and, like, on a much smaller level, I know that feeling like herding cats. Like it just sounded like Mannequin or like desperately. And it made me think like all these projects now that you've had Good to Bad to Queen, Gorillas, doing the Bobby Womack shows, all of it, like there are like these things that, I don't know if you seem to thrive on it because it's its own adrenaline. It's like doing this incredible expended energy into it and this adrenaline. Like, will we be able to pull it off for this thing that will probably only last six weeks or eight Exactly,
0: exactly. You know, I like that. I like the futility of it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's not a career, you know what I mean? I sort of learned that. Don't see anything as a career because I think it can really... uh, Can really inhibit you because, and then you start making decisions based on sustaining that thing and that success. And it's like, why? Yeah, we're successful anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just the fact that we make music is a success.
1: I remember, like, even just the adrenaline of going on, like, every night, knowing, like, will we pull this off? Was like its own rush. Like, will it? Will I have to? How many times I have to cue the bass playing like the third song? Yeah. When I was touring, like, certain records like version or something when I that was my first time on the road like somebody would call up and be like Ian McCulloch's in Liverpool he's coming to your show do you want to learn a song I'd be like yeah of course so sound check like everyone's so hungover, like everything and we're like learning people are strange and then I think we counted that we learned in the course of a three week tour we ended up playing 80 more songs that were like on the set <laughs> Which list is great, but though. I loved That's the great. adrenaline
0: of course yeah yeah being open to that is key really to you know not being afraid of failing yeah, I don't think you ever really find the ultimate expression of anything. You right. know what I mean? It's like, I would really, really, really try not to do it anymore. But I kind of sort of, I imagine the outcome. Okay. Unless never- Before it's out? You- yeah. And it's never like that, right. ever.
1: And sometimes you can imagine it. You mean, you're not always saying it to me. The <laughs> 99% you can it, good of the time, it's
0: way below, way below what I imagine it's going right. to, you know, just, just, just the way it is. And occasionally this surprises you and you're like, yeah, you know, it's like, wow, I didn't expect that. Yeah. And then things that didn't seem to really pop at the time, 10 years later, are popping like crazy. Yeah. And it's like,
1: I mean, I kind of took like a brief look down the thing and I was like, Half a billion streams for Clint Eastwood, half a billion streams for Song 2. Like, I mean, the fact is that, like, there's like very few things other than Calvin Harris, like things that were so classic back then that we love. You look at certain fucking Beatles, Stones, Turtles songs, yeah, are like yeah. 10 million streams, no, like some of the biggest indie bands ever, like just certain music just will never stream I know. Up because it no. won't no. Enter I know this era. Stre-
0: Streaming is a very mercurial thing. Yeah. And, I, I, and sometimes I look at things that are just you know, in the billions, and you just go, why? Yeah. Why?
1: Yeah. I guess because they came out now,
0: maybe. And it's to like, do with algorithms as well, though, now, you know, and it's I don't know what they're doing.
1: Is that the red light? Like, okay, wrap it up. Is that the thing? That, I don't know. I mean, that's pretty fucking great. I mean, we got so much good shit. That I think that's yeah. Well, a good I would to like end. to
0: at some point continue this over a drink and just, yeah. you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Maybe after. I've glass. always wanted to work with you, you know. Yeah. Yeah, what, we we kind of talked about it. But, you know, at some point that would be great. Yeah. Honestly. I'd love to. Yeah, I can see that you're like...
1: Do I come here or do I go to Devon? Am I locked in Devon or do I get
0: to oh, be here? Well, depends. And... <laughs> <laughs> if you go to Devon, it's good if you can drive. Okay. Because then you can escape. Can you know, drive. But for people who can't drive, they're fucked. Yeah, I'd love to do something. Well, I just think we should yeah. continue this conversation because, you know... Let's do it yeah cool right thank you wicked that was that was great, great. I enjoyed it thank you
1: whoa an amazing conversation and i might have got a gig out of it thank you so much to damon alburn i learned so much and if anything i'm inspired to keep learning take me out with the fader take me out with the fader take me out with the fader
0: A special Fader thank you to our Grammy and Oscar award-winning host, Mark Ronson. Please visit thefader.com slash podcast to read the original cover story and check out a playlist of artists mentioned in this episode. If you like the show, please share it and review us on your favorite podcast app. Executive Producers Rob Stone and John Cohen. Directed by Daniel Nevetta and produced by The Fader in association with byt.nyc. Engineered and mixed by David Rogers Berry. Theme music by DJ Premier. For Fader Uncovered merchandise, please visit shop.thefader.com. Thanks, and see you next week.